Well, we enjoyed such a, a great time of fellowship today with uh, the leaders of your church and some of the members as well. We have really enjoyed our time with you. So I just wanted to say how much I like you before the question and answer time. <laughs> so you'll be kind and nice. Um, no, that's, that's fine. Be mean. You'll have to deal with the Lord, all right? So we, we really have been thankful to be with you throughout this time and uh, to enjoy studying the word and just to get to know you and see your hunger and thirst for the word of God too and the fellowship that that has created here in this church it's it's really really encouraging and so we thank the Lord for the work that he's doing here in Newton and uh, we're we're really thrilled with the partnership that we will share with you and we're looking and praying for ways in which we might enjoy that even further uh, in the months and years to come and pray the Lord might, might do that together with us. Well, let's turn again to the last part of 1 Corinthians 10, and we're going to finish out our study of this chapter tonight and finish up this theme of take heed lest we fall. Chapter 10, look at verse 31, and I want to read through chapter 11, verse 1. So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, as I am of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we pray for wisdom. We pray for the work of the Holy Spirit to illuminate our hearts and our minds now to understand the word. And as we understand what you have written, we pray that you would continue to illuminate our hearts to know how we might use it personally, practically, as a church, as people in the culture in which you have placed us at a time that you have so determined for us to live and to influence the world for your honor and your glory. We pray that we can take in the truth and then use it in a way that brings many to know the Savior. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. One of the most distinguishing marks of true faith is found not in merely what you do or what you do not do, but in the motivations of your heart that cause you to do or not do certain things. At its core, Christianity is not a quest for a better life. Christianity is a quest to demonstrate the greatness of God in all of the details of life. That's essentially what it means to bring glory to God. And that kind of approach changes everything for us. Bringing resolve to our problems, struggles, and frustrations found in things like employment challenges, family intrigue, financial stress, relationship dilemmas, health crises, and a thousand other issues. All of these are best viewed as opportunities to demonstrate the goodness of God's sufficiency enjoyed through the application of Christ's redemption from sin. Living for the glory of God not only reshapes the way we think about personal problems, but also about personal behavior choices, the way we choose to live, what we choose to buy or not buy, what we choose to wear or not wear, how we choose to look or not look, how we spend our time. And in light of the themes that we've been studying in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, how we choose to use or abstain from activities that may be biblically allowable, we look at this and say when God's glory is supreme in our yearning, then the decision point for us becomes less about the freedom that we have to do this or that and more about what will actually and thoroughly display God. Precisely because it's so critical and central to life, 
living for the glory of God is the most challenging thing we will ever do. You understand, as I do, if you've lived the Christian life for really any amount of time, our tendency, our natural tendency is not to drift toward the glory of God, is it? It is to drift away from it. It is the great challenge of our heart to center our life on living for the honor and glory of God. Drenched in the effects of humanity's fall into sin is to seek anything else other than the glory of God. The reason why we are so steeped in selfishness is because we're consumed by sinfulness. And the struggle to live for the glory of God doesn't merely impact internal satisfactions in our heart. It also defines our satisfaction in relationships with others. And when it is that we pursue the glory of God personally, we will find ourselves wanting God's glory relationally with other people. God's glory will not only be seen in personal decisions, but in relational interactions. And that is the idea that we will see tonight in the passage that we're looking at. I want to remind you that the primary theme of the entire chapter is found in two verses that we have gone over each time. This primary theme is found both in a negative way and a positive way. It's expressed in the negative in verse 12. Therefore, let everyone who thinks or anyone who thinks that he stands, if you think that you're spiritually strong, take heed, lest he fall. That's the warning. The encouragement is found in verse 31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That's the encouragement. And our chapter that we've been studying has given us five different examinations so that we would not delude our hearts from true faith, but pursue the glory of God in true faith. We began this past Sunday morning with the first in verses 1 to 5. Don't trust in the signs of belief like baptism or the Lord's Supper. That's not what we trust in. We actually trust in the substance of belief, the person of Christ. Secondly, we should abandon the behaviors of unbelief. If we don't want to be the kind of people who think that we're strong and then fall, we should be actively abandoning the behaviors of unbelief. Verses 6 through 13 unpacked those. Third, we should flee from all forms of idolatry. That's what we looked at in verses 14 to 22. And on the heels of that, keep your freedoms, the freedoms that God has given you in Christ, keep them free from idolatry. Because if you keep pursuing idolatrous ways, if you mix idolatry in, you will create the circumstances that could potentially cause you to fall away from the living God. Last, we will see in these verses that we've read, if we want to make sure that we examine our hearts so that we do not delude ourselves, we need to make sure, we need to ensure that we are actually living for the glory of God. Live for the glory of God. That is the primary way you're going to ensure that you will never fall. Live for the glory of God. That is how God keeps us. You live for the honor and the supremacy of God in everything that you do. And living for the glory of God will always cause you to live for the gospel good of others. If you are really centralizing God, you will then live for the gospel good of others. That's how you display the greatness of God. In fact, this passage that we're looking at tonight is really just a summary exhortation calling us to glorify God in the use of our liberties for the gospel good of other people. And it is the sure means that we will not be the kind of people who delude our hearts and eventually fall away from God. God means most to those who are truly his. If you're truly in God, God will mean everything to you. He is not something you just tack onto your life. It is, as Colossians 3 says, he is your very life. And you can easily see the two intertwined truths in this passage. 
of glorifying God and living for the gospel good of others. In verse 31, it, it literally tells us to live for the glory of God, but been, then pivots in verse 32 and into chapter 11, verse 1, that we should live for the gospel good of others. That's how we display the glory of God. So how do they work together? How do these truths work together in bringing together everything that we have been studying over these past sessions together? Everything that we've been saying about our liberties and our security in Christ, how do we bring God glory for the gospel good of others and avoid falling away from him in the use of our liberties? Well, we're going to look at two necessary borders in which to corral and express our genuine liberties in Christ. That's what we're going to focus on, two necessary borders. We're going to set up some borders for ourselves in which we corral and express our liberties in Christ. We have to limit ourselves at times, and we should express ourselves at times in our liberties. So what are the borders that help us do that in such a way, in such a way that we live for God and we live for others at the same time? Well, let's look at the first of these borders. First, let your activities of life highlight God's value. Let the activities of your life highlight God's value. That's really what we mean when we say glorify God. You are highlighting God's value. That's how you glorify God. You show the world how valuable God is to you. Now we use that phrase, the glory of God, so often because it is so very biblical. I, I think that really is the theme of the entirety of the Bible, is the glory of God. And everything in the scripture is subservient to that and points us to that. Even our own salvation. Our salvation is to display the glory of God. The glory of God began in creation as God displayed himself in creation. It ends in the book of Revelation highlighting the supremacy of God. It's bookends in our Bible. But what does it mean to bring him glory? Well, that's where the Apostle Paul takes us in verse 31. So, in light of everything that we have been talking about in regard to our liberties especially in light of the last passage that we looked at last evening in verses 23 to 30, of how you have the right to freely enjoy a, a dinner at a friend's house and eat and drink whatever they might provide for you, or if he or another suggests that the food is devoted to the worship of another god, a false god, you have the freedom to choose something else at the meal so it doesn't cause them to think that you affirm idol worship as legitimate expressions of worship or that Christianity is somehow open and embracing of all religions. You have this choice and that causes you then to highlight God. So, this is how you live for God. Whether you eat or drink, whether you eat or drink, what is Paul referring to here? We, we clearly see what he's talking about in light of the context, don't we? If you're going to someone's house Eat whatever is put in front of you. Drink whatever is put in front of you. But if they indicate that this is somehow connected to a God, you, you pull back for conscience sake. Not yours. Your conscience is free. But so that their conscience would not connect idolatry to Christianity. So whether you eat or you drink, you do all of it to highlight the value of God. I think we would all be tempted if we were in one of those situations. We would be tempted, wouldn't we? Not to make waves. Not to upset the relationship. Oh, I don't want to make them upset if they tell this to me. And, and I say, ah, oh, well, I can't participate. Well, what is of most value to you? That they see the glory of God? Or that you don't have an upset relationship with them? That's what's at stake. Whether you eat or drink in everything that you do, how are you highlighting the value of God? Life is not about living out what is rightfully ours to do. It's not what life is about. Life is about acting in a way that displays the supremacy of God and displaying a gospel highlighting way to live to other people. I mean, you think about what God's glory is. How would you define God's glory? Well, it's very difficult. I mean, you know it when you see it. It's kind of like the word beauty. How do you define that? Well, you know it when you see it. 
But the glory of God, to try to describe it, it is what makes him magnificent. It is the brilliance of God. It is his supremacy over all things, the weightiness of the character of God, the power, the wisdom, the sovereignty that is inherent in God. All of that is what we refer to when we talk about the glory of God. So in whatever you do, in all of your life's activities, particularly those that will be observed by those who do not value God, do those activities in a way that highlights how valuable he is to you. Now, that's not a new concept. That's not a Pauline insertion into Christianity. We, we heard this from the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ, Matthew 5, 16. In the same way, let your light shine before, before others so that they may see your good works. And in a, as a result, what do they do? Glorify your Father who is in heaven. They look at your life, they see your deeds, they see your actions, and they long to see God. 1 Peter 2, 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Or another passage from Paul, Colossians 3.17, similar to what we read here in 1 Corinthians, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. That's a constant theme in the scripture, isn't it? Honor God, bring glory to God. Now when we say that, we're not suggesting that you need to put on some kind of a religious show so that people will see how religious you are. That is not the aim of our our life, and and we really need to think of that very carefully. We're not just trying to show people religiosity. We're not just trying to make people say, ah, they go to church. Do you really have God at the center of your life? I mean, Jesus would also say, after that statement in chapter 5 of Matthew, when he says, let people see your good works so they glorify God, he also warned them in chapter 6, in that Sermon on the Mount, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. If you want people to see your good works, it should have the motive so that they would see and value God. But if at the end of all of your deeds is that they would be pleased with you, then that is the end of your reward. That's all you receive is people's pleasure with you. And that will end when your life ends. That's as far as it goes. Live for the glory of God and your life and your deeds will have eternal fruit and eternal impact. Genuinely, consciously, intentionally engage in or even avoid particular activities so that those who observe your life are enamored with God. This is not an approach to activities that seeks to get as close as possible to what is unrighteous without crossing the line. This is an approach to life activities that seeks to get as close as possible to what will honestly enjoy the righteousness of God and not even come close to a line that would not. I hear that a lot from people. Pastor, what's your, what's your idea on this? Can I, how far can I get to this sinful activity with, before I cross the line? I think that's always the wrong question, isn't it? So how far can I get before it becomes sinful? Why don't we ask, how far can I get to glorifying God in something? Not just how far can I get to close to sin, how much, how valuable can I show God's glory in an issue? I mean, just think of how this would have saved the Israelites in the wilderness if they had lived for the value of God. But you consider the primary plight of the Israelites of the Old Testament as we were looking at them in the first part of chapter 10. It was not that they simply made a few mistakes along the way. That wasn't the problem. It wasn't that they just chose to follow the law incorrectly or they overlooked the plight of the needy among them or they just allowed some kind of injustice to exist in their midst. That was not the problem. There was something more sinister at play in Israel's heart all along their history. It's exposed in the prophets, 
An example of that is Ezekiel chapter 36. You could just jot it down. I want to read it to you because it really gets to the heart of Israel's heart problem. Ezekiel 36 verse 22 says, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for the sake of my holy name which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when through you I vindicate my holiness before their eyes. So we all think about Israel and the the plight of Israel and how the Lord brought his judgment against them. But why did he bring his judgment against Israel? Why did he do that? Well, they weren't taking care of their poor. They, they were simply engaging in sinful activities, bettering themselves, pursuing wealth. No, that wasn't the issue. As they neglected the poor, as they bettered themselves, as they tried to get closer to their neighbors, God says, you did not treat me as holy to the rest of the nations. That's why we cannot adopt the ways of the world into our system of worship. We can't wrap our arms around the secular and bring it close to us. We can't partner with what is of darkness when we're of light because that does not highlight the holiness of God. When Israel allowed their needy among them to experience injustice and they disregarded the law of God and they adopted the ways of the pagan nations around them, when they included pagan worship with God's worship, the ultimate sin they committed was to profane the name of God. They did not honor him as God. Or to put it another way, they neutered the value of God in the presence of those who had no regard for God. The very purpose of Old Testament Israel's existence was to be a testimony to the nations of how glorious God was, how valuable he was. Have you ever thought about that? Why does the Old Testament have all of these laws that get down to such minutia in life? You can't have clothing that has mixed threads? Really? What's the point in that? What, what is the point of all these issues in the law that touched on every facet of life? Can... Can you just think on that for a moment? Every time an Israelite, whatever they did in life, whatever they chose to do, they were constantly, the law constantly made them choose. Will you live for God or will you choose another way? Will you highlight the value of God in the decisions you make or will you do something else? The whole law was to have Israel show the value of God in every facet of life. That was the point. So when they choose another way, they're choosing to say God is not most valuable. Little is different for us. As the new covenant people of God that we are, the church we now hold the crowned jewels of divine purpose that Israel once held. Our very existence as the church, as a Christian, is to express the profound value of God's excellencies. Isn't that what Peter says? To those who know Christ, 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Our whole purpose in salvation is to point to the excellencies of God. And living in a way that highlights the value of God can be seen both in what you participate in and what you choose not to engage in. You have to think through that practically. Do you have family members? who are non-Christians with whom you will spend time with? How is it that you're going to highlight the value of God when you're with those family members who don't know the Lord? You have to think through that very carefully. 
And I, again, just like last night, I don't have a list for you. This is the way you do it, and this is the way you don't do it. But you have to think that through. How am I, knowing them, knowing us, how am I going to show the value of God? And how valuable God is to us? And that could look like a number of things. But you actually have to intentionally think that through from a God-centered perspective. Maybe that includes a prayer before a meal. Perhaps it doesn't. An invitation to attend church with you. A birthday or Christmas gift that would point them to Christ. Maybe a Bible. And then the not just give them a Bible, but then offer to read it with them. And talk to them and explain what the Bible means if they would be open to that. What about your neighbors, co-workers, Do you establish friendships with them with the intention of demonstrating to them how valuable God is to you? Do you think of your relationships with those neighbors and co-workers in that way? Do you not realize God gave you the job you have, put you in the neighborhood you live in, gave you the family that you have so that you would actually live out the supremacy of God to those people? Are you consciously thinking, how would I live to the glory of God in whether, whether I eat or drink or everything I do? I do all of this to highlight the value of God. How do you teach your children to value God? How do you show them the value of God. You, you can live according to certain traditions that you have, and our family has always lived this way. This is the decision we make because this is our family. That doesn't really highlight God. It just highlights your traditions. And that might be good, and it might be moral. It might be right in some ways. might seem moral, but is it actually showing them the value of God? Do they know why you do what you do? Do they see and feel and sense the value of God in the motivations behind your actions? I mean, Paul makes glorifying God very practical. His value can be seen and it can be clouded by the normal activities of life like eating and drinking and a thousand other things that we do. Can you participate in an activity because it will represent how glorious God is? Or would your participation in it diminish him? Would it make him look smaller than he is or less appreciated, maybe even hated? What a profound principle this makes us think about. In fact, I I really think as you live for the glory of God, you're going to find yourself living a bit like the Apostle Paul, and some people may say you live inconsistently. You live one way in front of some people, you live another way in front of others. Paul would say, okay, Okay, but in every conscious choice I make, I'm trying to live in such a way that I can build relationships with people that show the value of God. So I use my freedoms that way, or I limit my freedoms that way. But I live so that God might be highlighted. Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Highlight his value. Now that brings us to a second border that Paul provides for us in this text. That's really the overarching idea, but see where that leads us next, to the second border that Paul provides so that we would live rightly with our rights and our freedoms. Secondly, let your approach to life value the salvation of others. So if you're living for the glory of God, you will also live for the salvation of others because there is nothing else that would glorify him more than to see people come to value him most, which is what salvation is. And that's essentially what the emphasis of verse 32 through chapter 11, verse 1 is. Have an approach to the way you choose to live life that consciously, intentionally thinks about the salvation of others. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews or Greeks or to the church of God, just as I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many, that they may be what? Salvation means everything to him, because that's the key to bringing God the most glory. And you have to see how those relate to each other. 
Seeking the salvation of others is a primary way you bring God glory. So how are we going to do that? How are we going to live in such a way that we value the salvation of others? Well, let's look at three different ways we do that in these verses. First, do not distract others from the gospel with your approach to life. Do not distract others from the gospel with your approach to life. Don't distract people from the gospel with the way you choose to live your life. Verse 32, give no offense to Jews. Give no offense to the Greeks or to the church of God. This is really fascinating. Give no offense. This is an interesting word in the original, in the Greek New Testament. It's a very curious word. It's used two other times in the New Testament. Once in Acts 24, 16, where it is speaking about a, having a clear conscience, a conscience that is free from any objection, a clear conscience before God and men. It's also used in Philippians 1.10 when it talks about living in a blameless way, a way that has no objection to it. Give no offense. Give no offense. Have no blame in your life. Let no one look at your life and blame you for being offended with God. Live in a way that doesn't cause people or provide people a legitimate opportunity to bring blame or bring shame or cause them to be offended or put off by you and thus not follow the Lord. But this is not really an exhortation to simply avoid living so that people think you're strange. They don't want to, you don't want them to think that you're strange. This is not living that way or self-righteous or aloof. Don't approach life so that they won't be saved. That's the issue. You see it at the end of verse 33. He's living so that they may be saved. So he mentions several people here. Give no offense to Jews. Give no offense to Greeks. Give no offense to the church of God. It's not hard to see what he's talking about in light of everything that we've been studying in this chapter. All of these groups have been mentioned They've all been named. They've been the, the object of how they live out, uh, how they are described here, really through chapter 8, 9, and 10. If we were to look through those chapters again, we could see the Jews could be easily turned away from the gospel by your eating meat that had been dedicated to an idol, and thus they think you affirm idolatry, and so they would be offended by you. So when you're with the unsaved Jews, you don't eat such meat. Greeks could be turned away from the gospel by your refusal to drink their wine or eat their meat or even come enjoy a meal in their home because it may have had some prior idol history. So when you're with the unsaved Greeks, without raising any questions, eat whatever is put in front of you for the sake of their conscience. It's what we read last night again in chapter 9 when Paul says, when I'm with the Jews, I live like the Jews. When I'm with the Greeks, I live like the Greeks. Why? So that... I might save them all. That's his goal. And, and I can imagine people are going to say, that just looks inconsistent. And Paul says, but I'm not living for you. I'm not living for your evaluation of me. I'm living for the glory of God. I want to see these people know the Lord. That's why I choose to do what I do in different settings. And in every setting I'm in, I make a decision regarding that. Now, what's interesting is that last phrase. We understand, don't offend the Jews, don't offend the Greeks, but he also says, don't bring offense to the church of God. What does that mean? Ah, well, if someone in the church doesn't like what I do, I can't do that. No, that's not what he means. That's not what he means. What likely does he mean? I think he's referring to the people described in chapter 8 who are the weaker brothers. And the weaker brothers are not people who have a different opinion than you about that behavior. The weaker brother is likely the new Christian in the church, newly saved. His conscience is still tinged with idolatry. He's just come out of it. And if he were to watch you go to the idol's temple and sit down for a meal and hear the prayer prayed over that, he would assume idolatry is okay. So then why am I struggling with this Christianity and all the social problems that it brings up? I'll just go back to my, my, my ways because look at this Christian. They do it too. And you see this newly saved person 
slink back into idolatry because you led them there. That's what he means by don't offend the church of God. These weak new believers. Again, we're not talking about just people who have a different standard than you, a different idea, a different tradition, a different way to apply the Bible than you, and they're offended with the way you live your... That's not what we're talking about in the church. That's not the weaker brother. That might be the legalist, and you might need to go out and offend them. That might be good. But don't offend the church of God. I think everything that Paul says in this chapter would likely be offending some Christian. Some Christian conscience within, within the church. It would have been disturbing to everybody. He's stirring the pot, as it were. Making everybody there a little bit uncomfortable. And this is going to look different with different groups of people who you're with. If you travel to another country, it's going to look different, right? I, I was hearing that from a brother and sister last night when they worked in, in Africa. It, they had to think through some of these things very specifically. And, and they were evaluating some of their behaviors in light of what we were talking about in chapter 10. It just looks different. If you are traveling in Europe, it's probably going to look different than when you're with your American co-workers. It might look different when you're with your politically left-leaning family members when you are with them than maybe when you're with your small group at church. You say, I don't have anything to do with left-leaning political people. You should. You should. Don't they need the influence of the gospel? Well, how are they going to get that if you're just constantly alienating yourself from them? How are they going to see Christ and the value of God? You don't have to agree with them. But how are you going to live with them and show them the value of God? Your approach to life might look a little different in terms of what you may enjoy when you're at home in the privacy of your home as opposed to when you're at a birthday party of one of your kid's unsaved friends. And that's okay. As long as you're living in such a way that your conscience is living before God. The issue is here, be aware. Know the people that you're with and what would be the kinds of approaches to life that would cloud their understanding of Christianity rather than clarify their understanding of it. The goal of the Christian life is not merely to have activities of life that are the same no matter what setting you are in. Well, that might sound right, but it doesn't work out practically. Be willing to give some of those issues up so that you don't make someone think that your life is about your chosen activities more than it is highlighting the person of Christ. That's the negative side. Let me give you a second way we make sure that our approach to life actually values the salvation of others. Secondly, here's the positive side, live to attract others to the gospel with your approach to life. Don't live to offend them, but live to attract them to the gospel with your approach to life. Now, I, I know we have to be careful with this. I know we have to be careful with this. We certainly need to be careful with this idea of living to attract them to the gospel. And we don't want to get the wrong picture here, but I want you to think about it carefully with me. Notice Paul's statement. Verse 33, just as I try to please everyone in everything I do. Now this is connected to what he says in verse 31. What, whether I eat or drink, whatever I do, I want to bring glory to God, meaning I want to please everyone so that they can see God. I'm not trying to unnecessarily offend people, but live so that they might be pleased so they would consider God. Is Paul saying here, I'm a people pleaser. That's what I am. Well, yes, he is. And no, he's not. It's both. No, he's not saying he's a people pleaser in the sense that he's addicted to people's affirmation of him as a person and that's where he gets his self-worth or he finds his joy in life is in people's affirmation of him personally. He just wants to have, you know, win friends and influence people. Paul would say in Galatians 1.10, am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? 
Am I trying to please man? If I was trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he's, he's not a people pleaser in the sense of, I just want your personal affirmation of me personally. But is he a people pleaser in another sense? Yes, he's a people pleaser in that he wants a clear, open path to helping any person see the gospel without unnecessary distraction from it. He wants to live to attract them, to have them be pleased with Christ. He's not saying, I just want you to be pleased with me. If they like me, maybe they'll like Jesus. That's one approach people have taken to evangelism. That's not what he's saying here. In everything I do, I'm conscious of who's in front of me. What would be an unnecessary distraction and what would be helpful for them to actually see how much I value Christ? In what I affirm or what I won't affirm in my behavior. Again, look at verse 33. I I try to please everyone and everything I do, not seeking my own advantage. I'm not doing this for me. I'm not looking for my advantage in my relationships with people. I'm seeking the advantage of many that they would ultimately be saved. Paul's saying, I'm not here to promote or merely hold out my personal preferences or personal convictions that are purely personal. I am actually seeking the salvation of another person. If you are with someone eating or drinking something they have graciously provided you, you would not compromise your testimony or overturn the message of the gospel If you're in that situation and they put something in front of you, eat it. You say, I wouldn't normally eat this. I wouldn't normally do this. This would normally be something I avoid. But if you're not compromising the gospel, eat that. You're seeking their salvation. Consider the context. What's being said by the place you are in with them in a social context. When we're in Central Asia with our family, and we were touring through different parts of, of Turkey. Uh, you know, they, they have bread with everything they eat. Everything. And it's the kind of bread you want to eat all the time. You know, it's just really, really good. It's fresh. There's no preservatives in it. And they have it at every single meal. And some even had the idea that a loaf of bread should be eaten by every person at every meal. That was a little odd to me, but uh, I I saw all these these loaves of bread, and I I was asking the host, well, what's the point of that? And they said, well, we assume you're going to eat, every person's going to eat one of those loaves. I thought, wow, I'm going to be five miles wide by the time I get back home. (laughs) And we were actually provided some food that I was quite sure I would, uh, I never would have chosen to eat had I... uh, had I had the choice to eat it. Um, But when we were in the home of our non-Christian friends who were Muslim, they didn't know Christ, but they welcomed us into their home and they put out this spread of food in front of us that was just absolutely amazing. It showed our pleasure in them and our openness to them as we just enjoyed that meal with them. I can remember being in the home of one family uh, in my first trip to Central Asia, and I had no earthly idea what I was putting in my mouth. And I had no idea where this was coming from or what it what was. I, I couldn't even understand the host at the table if it wasn't for the translator who was with us. But there was such pleasure in them as we had that meal together. They'd never met us. We'd never met them, but we spent four hours with them. And the missionary who was with us, he said, you guys had so much joy in sitting there eating this meal with them. They were open to listening to everything that you had to say. And he said, I, for the very first time, I've known these people for almost a decade. And for the first time, I had the most thorough, open gospel conversation with them that I've ever had. And he said, most of that was because you sat there and you just enjoyed them. You, you weren't skittish, you were asking questions, you wanted to know about them, you just, you enjoyed their life with them. And there was no compromise of the gospel in us doing that. Whether they've come to faith or not, I don't know, but it was a joyful time to sit there and hear them ask questions about Christianity that they've never asked before. 
What we're seeking in any setting and every setting is not what we want. It's not what we prefer, but what will benefit the gospel in the presence of those who have no understanding of it. One commentator made an interesting comment here I want to read to you. Just listen to it for a moment. He said, freedom does not mean that one does whatever one wishes with no regard for others. Nor do the limits on freedom suggest, suggested here mean that another's conscience dictates conduct. To the contrary, everything is for God's glory and for the sake of the gospel. That is, for the good of all, which from Paul's point of view means that they might be saved. That raises both concerns above mere rules of conduct. Eating and drinking are irrelevant. The one who insists on the right to eat and drink is thereby making it significant. On the other hand, because it is irrelevant, one can use such freedom to forbear when necessary for the sake of the gospel. Food is not the issue. Drink is not the issue. Don't make it the issue. God is the issue. Displaying God, that is the issue. Traditions are not the issue. The way you've always done it is not the issue. God is the issue. And you have to decide in every setting, how will you display God to them? But let's sum it all up and see a third and final way we make sure that our approach to life is actually valuing the salvation of others. Third, be an imitator of Jesus' approach to life. Be an imitator of Jesus' approach to life. This is an incredible statement in chapter 11, verse 1. Why there's a chapter break here and not in verse 2, I don't know, because verse 1 really is the summary statement. Because Paul says, imitate me. Imitate me in what? Well, in choosing what I'll do and what I won't do, what I'll involve myself in and what I won't involve my, myself in, how I won't offend Jew or Greek or the church of God and, and what I will participate in. Imitate me. Imitate me. That's quite a statement, isn't it? That's quite a bold statement. But that actually is Christian discipleship. That's what Christian discipleship is. When you are discipling another, you're asking them to imitate you. You are imitating another disciple. That's discipleship. Imitate me. It's not the first time Paul says this. Even in this letter, 1 Corinthians 4, 16, I urge you then, be imitators of me. Philippians chapter 4, verse 9, everything you've seen and heard in me, practice these things, he says. Imitate me. But you see the caveat there. As, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. This is a really profound statement and Paul really camps on this in a variety of ways throughout his letters. But think of this. When he went to the city of Corinth, there were no Christians there. How did anyone in that society know what Jesus was like? How did they know what Christ was like and what it meant to live like Christ? How did they know that? They saw it in Paul, right? As he was following the Lord, they were actually seeing what it looks like to live like Christ. As he's making decisions with different social groups, he's doing so for God's glory, not for his own advantage. He's doing it for their salvation, which is exactly what Jesus did. It's exactly what he did. Imitate me. Because I'm actually imitating Christ. We alluded to that last night. Jesus is the one who ate and drank with sinners. And he offended the Pharisees because they wanted to affirm a false approach to God. And he didn't want anyone to think that their approach to life was an accurate approach to God. But... In his eating and his drinking with sinners, he was not participating in any kind of activities that affirmed their sinful lifestyles. He didn't affirm extortion when he ate with a tax collector. He didn't affirm prostitution and adultery by eating with prostitutes and adulterers. 
He wasn't affirming their lifestyle. He was giving them the gospel. He was showing them God as he ate with them and drank with them. It was an occasion for interested sinners to meet Jesus and for him to explain to them who he was. And it was in the context of a regular meal, even a party. If you look at Matthew chapter 9 carefully, he went to a celebration. It was a party. And he went there so that he could talk to these sinners. Perhaps in that meal with all Jewish people, if he had brought over a bottle of wine that had come from a local Greek store where everyone knew it had been associated in the past with idol worship, he would have unnecessarily offended all of those Jews and had no opportunity to share the gospel. But think of what he also did. He touched lepers. He touched lepers. To touch a leper was to make yourself what? unclean but he touched the leper so that the leper would see God he stayed in a Gentile home in Gentile territory which in most Jews eyes would make him unclean but he did it not because it offended God it didn't offend God it was an opportunity to show the Gentile who Christ was he allowed prostitutes to wash his feet Can you even imagine? I I mean, we read that of Christ and we think, wow, that's profound. Really, would you think of that as profound if you were there watching it? Don't you think that some of us in our conservative Western thinking would think that's a prostitute washing his feet? Does he not know who that is? But didn't someone say that? To him? About him? Yes, they were offensive things to legalistic Jews who demanded a different approach to God. But the prostitutes saw Christ. And the Syrophoenician woman found Jesus. And the leper turned from his sin and found Christ. And Matthew and all of his sinful friends heard the Lord of creation as he sat at their table eating with them. And Jesus said of himself, he didn't come to do his own will. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to seek and to save the lost. Wasn't that his mission? To seek and save the lost. Which meant he continually sacrificed what would just benefit him personally the most for what would benefit the people who honestly wanted to hear his message of redemption. I mean, think, think about this. He even showed up on earth the way he did, sacrificing all the glories of heaven and taking on flesh and dying like a criminal when he was innocent. Why? To give you and me hope and forgiveness. What did he do? What did he do so that we would see the gospel? The life of Jesus, one commentator said, is a living doxology. He revealed God's glory in a world intoxicated with its own. Christians imitate Jesus. And discipleship is imitating Christians who imitate Jesus. That's what Paul's saying here. We live for the salvation of others in a way that shows the value of God and therefore we glorify God in everything we do. And so you see the bookends to this passage. Living for God's glory is found in imitating the approach to life that is actually seen in Jesus. Glorifying God in our choices because God's glory is what means the most to us. So don't distract others from the gospel Live to attract others to the gospel and imitate Jesus in the way he lived in that way. I think we can easily see those borders in what Jesus said when someone came up to him and said, what's, what's the greatest commandment in the law? What, out of all the law, what, what's the greatest commandment? Do you remember what he said in Matthew 22? You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and your soul and your mind. That is the great and foremost commandment. Love God comprehensively. And then what? And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That does not mean love yourself so that you can then love your neighbor. That means you already love yourself. I'm looking out at the crowd. You are well fed. You are clothed. I'm thinking most of you are bathed, right? I don't know about my son. Maybe, probably. You, care, you take care of yourself. You feed yourself. You clothe yourself. You, you, you got here in a, in a nice automobile. You, you have a place where you're going to sleep tonight that's not in the... You take care of yourself. Love your neighbor the way you love yourself. You already love yourself, so love others. Stress yourself out to love them. Stretch yourself out to love them. Love God with everything in you, but you don't really love him comprehensively if you don't love your neighbor as yourself. If you love them that way to show them God, then you are loving God with everything in you. I don't know what that is going to look like for you with the people that God has put in your life, it's going to look different for you than it does perhaps for me and our family and our circumstances. But you need to think through it very carefully and critically. Are you holding on to any kind of moral tradition just because it's that a moral tradition? Are you with, with restraining yourself from participating in any activity just because You've been told that's not an activity Christians do. Why? What verse? What text? What scripture? What are you referring to? Where is God forbidden? Or are you actually saying, you know what, I'm, I'm wide open. Now, if God forbids it, I don't participate in it. If it's clear in the scripture, it's clear in my life. Because God's most valuable. But if there's liberty, if there's gray areas... What means more is that I show the value of God and I help people find salvation in him. Dangerous way to live. People might misunderstand what you're doing. But what, what would this community think if that's how you lived? What does this community need to see in you, in this church, in what you will participate in and what you won't and why you do it, your motivations. What would cause this congregation to stand out so uniquely in this part of the world that highlights the value of God uniquely so that when people hear of Newton Bible Church, they're not, they're not hearing of a people, oh yeah, we, they're like every other. No, they, this is a people who radically live for the honor of God. And every time we encounter them, they're thinking about how can we show God most supremely to the people here around us. That kind of gospel might stir up trouble here. But it also might bring redemption to people who never otherwise would have found it. And wouldn't that mean more to you? Wouldn't you find more joy in giving God glory that way? Let's pray together. Father, we pray for wisdom and how this might uh, work out in our own circumstance and situation. We pray that we would be faithful to you in what your word has said and revealed to us. But Lord, we, we know there's going to be challenges in front of us and we're going to have to think through things very carefully. And we pray we would do it with a heart's desire that is no less than desiring to show your supremacy and your glory and your majesty your wisdom, your power in all things. Lord, we know that these concepts can be theoretical and weighty and we want clarity and we want specificity and, and Lord, at times you, you don't grant us that easily. We have to think through it carefully and do the hard work of sifting through the scriptures to make sure that how we're living really does point to your honor. So we pray for insight and discernment and what this might look like 
And I do pray for the testimony of this congregation that their love for Christ would be so fervent and so clear that other people are seeing the gospel lived out powerfully, that opportunities to share the gospel with the most unlikely people in this community are being experienced because the believers in this congregation are taking this assignment very seriously to consider how they are living in every situation with those who need to see the gospel. And I pray you would preserve that testimony and you would expand it and you would bring about eternal fruit from the testimony of Christ in this body of believers. And we pray for all of this to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.